Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. I never thought I'd die alone. I laughed the loudest. Who'd have known? I traced the cord back to the wall. No wonder it was never plugged in at all. I took my time. I hurried up. The choice was mine. I didn't think enough. I'm too depressed to go on. You'll be sorry when I'm gone. I never thought I'd die alone. Another six months I'll be unknown. Give all my things to all my friends. You'll never step foot in my room again. You'll close it off, board it up. Remember the time that I spilled the cup of apple juice in the hall. Please tell mum this is not her fault. So this is lyrics from a song written from uh, Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLong. Uh, this, it's called Adam's Song. Now, this is an uncharacteristic song by Blink-182, which are normally for, you know, oh, light-hearted stuff. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this song was in 1999, uh, and it stood out to me when I heard it because, again, it's such an unusual story. The song was inspired uh, when Mark, one of the band members, read a suicide note in a magazine that a teenager had left for his family. Uh, Mark wanted to write this song also because at the height of the band's success, he felt disconnected. He was uh, somewhat depressed and, and isolated. So the band would go on tour with his friends. They would come home. Uh, his, the other band members had their long-term girlfriends at the airport and he didn't have anyone. There's the lyrics that, that sort of mix this where he's going, the tour was over. We survived. I couldn't wait till I got home to pass the time in my room alone. This episode is about health data. It's, it, it, it can be personal and it can be intimate at times. It is about you. It is about me. And it's about everyone as an individual. And short of someone keeping a journal where they, they write their feelings and thoughts, it may be the most honest record of someone's experiences, their health, even sometimes the consequences of decisions that they've made. Health data is about privacy. Now, there is an argument that you shouldn't be worried about privacy if you have nothing to hide, but this misses the entire point. It assumes that those in power have your best interests at heart, which may or may not be true. And there's some quotes from uh, some prominent people that I think bring this uh, home. There's William J. Brennan who stated, If the right to privacy means anything, it is the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion. And in 2020, I'd probably change that a little bit to say the right to privacy is to be free from unwarranted corporation or government intrusion. And we have a second quote from Edward Snowden. Arguing that you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different than saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. So this point becomes very focused when we consider our own health. Now, there's general things that most people don't worry about sharing, things like cholesterol or I've got a you know, chest infection or hypertension. But then there's things that start to get specific, 
that may be stigmatized or very personal when we start talking about things like drug use, mental illness, depression, psychiatric disorders, even things like sexually transmitted infections. Is everyone happy to share this information with their employer or a government or a corporation or someone that has the appropriate clearance to get access to this information? We reserve that for health professionals, but then do, how far do we go beyond it? And this is where the song lyrics sort of brings it home. Let's assume this was a patient and then there was a risk assessment. This wasn't lyrics in a song. This was someone communicating that. And then the health record flagged this patient as a suicide risk and help was sent. Imagine you were able to get intervention to this young man, this adolescent, to prevent a suicide. You could prevent the loss of a son, a brother, a friend, a teammate. And this is where health data becomes complex and it affects every single one of us. And we have some guests joining us in just a moment to take this to a much deeper level and look at how it sits in the context of governance of that data. This pathological life continues now as we move deeper into this topic of data governance in relation to health data and joining us we have a special guest uh, Andrew Andrews he's a man who started computer programming on IBM mainframes whilst in high school in the mid 70s uh, he started a professional career programming statistical systems at the ABS back in 1984 uh, around the time I was born <clears throat> uh, he's been well a little bit after he's been consulting in data strategy and project management since the early 90s he's worked across workers comp education insurance health sectors he's mentored startups at adelaide and flinders universities and their innovation incubators and more recently initiated the national data governance program at the ACCC. he's now a data governance manager in the global group risk division of the anz he's an sa state president of the data management association of australia he sits on the national board he's a collaborator with the international data leaders organization he is the best man to join us for this conversation andrew andrews welcome hi steve hi trev how are we doing andrew i want to get into data governance as it relates to health records but before sure. we get into that sure. at the theoretical and uh, level in south australia at the time of recording yep. we've just had in the public domain yep. a discussion about the use of yep. health records yep. at, for or against the public good can you just unravel this sure. for us so a couple of weeks ago there was uh, an outbreak a covid outbreak and Somehow, the um, one of the workers at one of the hotels was working at a pizza pizza bar. Well, he actually said he was he was actually a customer and picked up allegedly picked up the COVID off the box. But as it was discovered uh, through contact tracing, the conversations in contact tracing, it was revealed, disclosed even, that he was a worker. And then. The day after when all this story broke out, the Premier and the Chief Public Health Officer said this is what's happened and, you know, it was a big political story. The whole state went into lockdown. You know, it was a whole bunch of stuff. Anyway, as of yesterday, 
it was disclosed or actually announced by the, poli uh, the police commissioner that the conversation, that initial conversation that was had between the worker and the government contact tracing person would be sealed and would be privileged. And it was uh, deemed to be a public, a private health record, that conversation. And so it was privileged and therefore not disclosed to the SA police as to what was discussed. And, and, I, and I reflected on that and I thought, wow, in a, in, in a, aren't we lucky we live in a country like Australia where we take health data so, so, so make it so important that we're prepared to stand up to public, to the public, to politicians, to anyone, to the police, to say, no, you're not allowed to see it. I mean, how good is that for a country to have that level of structure around its data, public it, health data, private health data? It is, it is good, but they've already, really, already been vilified in the media as the bad guy. And so, and so that conversation could reveal them that, yeah. well, maybe it was misinterpreted by the contact tracer. Maybe that could vindicate them. The thing is, the thing that, the thing that we're protected by is they haven't disclosed the name of the individual. Right. Right. Okay. It hasn't gone into mm. the public domain. I haven't seen it anywhere in mm. under the under the under the you know on the social media sort of conversations. So, at least they've protected that that confidentiality as well. And in our conversation earlier about this, Andrew, you mentioned the fact that yeah. what this boils down to is what was the context and the purpose of that information being given in the first place. Always, because the owner of the information is the individual, and only them, only they have the power to delegate the authority of its use, essentially. Mm. And any any state or federal government protections around data, it's always about the data being owned by the individual and its disclosure being for a purpose. Well, that's a perfect setup to actually go deep into this topic because I wanted to ask you if you could describe the significance of data governance yeah. when it comes to health records. So data, if, let's go back to first definition, first principles, data governance there's a couple of definitions. One of them is the uh, the policies and structures and regulations you need to have to protect privacy, security, integrity, the trust in the data. That's the first purpose the, of data governance. The second purpose of data governance is to make sure that the right data is given to the right people at the right time for the right purposes to do something of significance for, or for a purpose. So there's two definitions that we use and you play those uh, definitions in different settings, depending on what, what situation you're dealing with. So, so in the situation with public health data or private health data through the public system, it's the first one. It's making sure that confidential information is, remains private and only its terms and its use is actually defined by very strict protocols and there's, there's penalties if you breach data, data trust between the individual and the, and the clinical organism that you're dealing with, whatever that is, whether it's a, a, a pathology lab or a public hospital or a private hospital, a GP, allied health, whatever, it's, it's defined. Is it your sense within our health systems that there is a robust literacy when it comes to understanding governance in this context? In the health setting? Hmm. Um, every, every doctor that comes through university has the, they swear to the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Well, that extends the data as much as it does to the personal individual, right? So by disclosing data in an inappropriate setting, you're actually doing harm. So 
So the, it, it, from an ethical and clinical perspective, they, un they understand how confidential data needs to stay confidential. So um, every doctor that I know, every clinician I know, any, anyone in the industry knows how important, how special it is to protect private data. So I was just going to ask, Australia, where it sits, clearly that example gives a, a good indication that we're probably prioritising the individual more than sort of the state. Yeah. How are we sitting with other Western uh, countries or, or even just in general in the world for, for data protection? I think um, Australia is advanced, but maybe in some areas not as advanced or is getting more advanced in some areas, but I think Europe is uh, more advanced in some areas. In Europe, they have the general data protection regulations across across the EU mm -hmm. and, and the data governance of consumer data in the EU has been regulated for several years now. And so, and we're just evolving those frameworks here in Australia. Mm. Um, so there's, in Australia, there's a, a legislation called the Consumer Data Right, which actually protects consumer data and it's being open, it's being rolled out now in the, in the banking sector right now as we speak. But we're a few years behind the EU on that. Mm. Uh, I think from a, from a, um, I think health data across the world is is highly is protected, and it's probably the most protected health and education data across the world in the Western world is highly protected mm -hmm. because we value the individual, we value the the integrity of that data. I think uh, in in developing nations, I think it's probably something not as culturally as acceptable or as 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 required to be that you know strict with data protection, mm -hmm. although. In the developing nations like India, China, uh, well, China's an interesting context because of its political, the political situation there. Because, um, for example, in a in a Chinese uh, uh, schoolroom, they have uh, uh, they have AI watching the the pair the students. They have AI watching the the the, the teachers. They're looking at behavior. They're actually continuously monitoring. The behavior of the students in the classroom so you can imagine they use they're collecting data for a different purpose and maybe not with the disclosure of the parents either by the way as the carers so i think there's actually it, it relates back to cultural norms in a lot of ways as to how we value and protect the the rights of the individual the citizen if i go take back to that comment you made in the yep. gp setting for yep. example yep. that gps uh swear the hippocratic oath and yep. Obviously, I would expect everyone who listens to this podcast would understand they would never willfully do harm by willfully making information available that's not. But it's where it happens in a way that's unexpected because we might not realise the consequences of the way we're storing health records or uh, the transferring and the, the protection of information has vulnerability. So I wonder, for anyone who's managing health practices or in a hospital setting... Are there some rules of thumbs? Are there some questions they should be asking of their organisation that would help make awareness of where there might be vulnerabilities sure. in their protocols sure. and their tech? Sure. First question is, when in doubt, don't. Okay. Right. That's the very first question everyone asks. If there's any questions about whether this disclosure is appropriate or, or, or required, don't, don't disclose. Hold on to it until you definitely know that you can. <laughs> GP practices are becoming more digital by the day. I mean, just yesterday I noticed that GPs can now issue scripts digitally and 
people can collect them using a QR code at, um, you know, patients can collect them now at a QR card code in a pharmacy as of yesterday here in South Australia. So I think they're, they're becoming, GPs and clinicians are becoming more data literate or understanding and probably they're probably, I know if I speak to my GP, he's old school, he will, he will not use my health record data. He just will not do it. But there are obviously younger younger GPs who are more comfortable and realise that the benefits of the greater good outweigh the individual risks. It's going to evolve. It's new technology. I mean, health health data in the public domain run through the My Health Record system. It's new. It's it, it's prone to issues. It so far I haven't heard of any you know inadvertent disclosures you know through hacking or anything like that. At the beginning, I was I was actually not in favour. Um, I've learned to trust it and I think I'm going to change my uh, my own personal disclosure to say, yeah, you can have it, you can have the data. <laughs> That's uh, from a personal level because yeah. I think it's had the time, the, the t- technology's had time to mature and and I think I can learn to trust it a bit more now. And there's the balance of the nuance, isn't it? We're, we're looking at protecting our privacy in, in instead of giving to the state, but for many of us, and I was the same, I yielded to the... Yep. My health record. The, my, the I yielded disclosure. to my health record mm-hmm. because I thought it was for the common good as well. That was the driving force for me. As much as there might be benefit for me, yeah. there's benefit for the community. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was for me is really selfish because if me as a late 50s diabetic, I don't want to be in a hospital and they're saying, I don't have any of the medical records on Andrew. Right? And I wanted to make sure that I get, I'm saved, you know, I have the best chance of being saved. I mean, but that's the fundamentally, that's the purpose for the data, right, so, is to save people when they're in critical situations. Yes. So uh, then the, the challenge, though, is that there, there is inherent trust in government, mainly because of a, how do you say, how is it going to be used? How do I know it's going to be used? I mean, we have the, the classic case of my health record, which initially the police were going to have access to yeah. straight away without even going through the courts, which was a, even a relaxation of the, the privacy uh, sort of, uh, that we currently have. Um, is there any way to get reassurance that it's going to be okay to, to hand over that information that, that we're going? Or is there rigid rules that are going to be relaxed or is it going to go the other way, do you think? I think the... the the government, if you recall that incident, they changed the regulation, mm. the laws actually, mm. and they responded saying there's a there's a loophole in the in the in the, and it's actually not in the public interest to have that open and they knew that people were going to run away from using the system if they didn't close it and they did. Mm. So I think the whole issue in Australia has actually now gone quiet mm. because it's there's no issues. Okay. Right. So I, I've learned I, I think we we should trust it because um, hey you know how much data people have on us already <laughs> as citizens outside of the clinical system? Yeah. Everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. Everyone who's got a phone has got access to your data. So, As we draw this conversation to a close, uh, I just want to dive into your history, Andrew, because in some ways you've been a voice in the wilderness in some settings in the past in championing yep. taking data governance seriously. Sure. Is there anything you can share from your story of an anecdote of a time where that persistence has paid off? And 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 what do you think was the resistance you had to work against? Because there are going to be other people listening to this in corporate situations where that might still be at play. Okay, so if we manage data like we do money, imagine how different our world would be. 
Oh. Right? So our challenge in the data governance um, community globally, there's two challenges. One of them is how much value do you ascribe to the data? first thing because it costs something to create to maintain and to report and deliver and actually has a purpose which has a value attached to it (laughs) second thing is data literacy the whole purpose of what data is and how to use it and why what it why it's important there are two challenges and it's been most of my career has actually been swimming upstream in 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 changing culture and it's only things like we're doing now with the podcasting that we're actually able to educate the community in general on what data really means. Because if we manage data like we did money, our world would be different. We would be doing things differently with the way we've, we collect and store and disseminate data. Because we know that the money has a value. We know that money has value and there's fiscal controls in place around the world, but we don't have those level of controls in data. Well, there was actually said in a documentary that data has now overtaken uh, oil as the most valuable commodity. And how long has it taken for that to happen? (laughs) It's a long time, but it's getting better. And that's really good. And the interesting thing is we've only started drilling for it just recently. Correct. (laughs) Andrew Andrews, thanks for taking some time out of your busy life to join this conversation. I'm I'm thrilled for the opportunity to be here. Thank Thank you, guys. Thank you, Andrew. For the final part of this episode into health data and data governance, uh, we have another special guest. We have the co-founder and CEO of Prestigen, uh, Dr. Michelle Perugini, and uh, welcome to This Pathological Life, Michelle. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Uh, For people listening in, I'll just mention that you have a a PhD in medicine. You founded two global AI tech companies. Uh, Your first, which was acquired by EY in 2015, you're the co-founder and CEO, as I mentioned, of Presogen, an AI healthcare company with an advanced AI platform and first product, Life Whisperer, that uses AI for embryo selection in IVF and is being sold globally. Uh, You're a dedicated mentor and advisor to many startups, a member of the Australian Commonwealth Government Research and Development Incentives Committee. So you are perfect to bring us home in this conversation. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. The first place I want to touch base on is about the the good use of uh, health data because we've looked at some stories, we've heard of the risks and the importance of uh, data governance. But I just wonder, um, what is the value awaiting us, Michelle, when we apply properly uh, data analysis and behavioural patterning? Uh, the amount of value that data analysis and data can provide to all these new age technologies is enormous. Um, And if you consider the industry that we're in, we're in artificial intelligence, which is completely underpinned by data. And if there's good governance around that data, then that data can build very powerful products that can drastically improve clinical efficiency, uh, improve patient outcomes through better clinical decisioning. And in the case of Life Whisper, we can actually create babies using data and creating AI that can assist with what is currently a very difficult process for the clinician. 
this is fascinating for someone like me who is a layperson in this field. Uh, it, it does seem like I'm hearing the, the plot from a science fiction movie in the future and you're already there. Um, could you share a couple of stories about how you're using uh, data in these fields in which you're operating? Take us through an anecdote or two. So in the embryo assessment process, so if you're an infertile patient and you go into an IVF treatment clinic to try and um, conceive a baby, what happens is you have eggs that are fertilised with sperm and then actually grown in a culture dish, so outside of the body, and then you develop embryos that one of which needs to be selected by the clinician to put back into your uterus to hopefully create a baby. Now, that process of embryo selection is really critical um, to the success of a pregnancy outcome, but it's actually an incredibly difficult thing for a clinician to assess the embryos and determine which one is more or less likely to lead to a pregnancy. And so what our system has done is we've trained an AI, which is a computer algorithm, to look at thousands or tens of thousands of historical images of embryos where we know whether a pregnancy resulted or not. And it has learned and it just builds up a very simple, it's not simple, but (laughs) um, for the computer it's simple, it builds up a classification system of those embryos. And then next time we drag and drop an image of a new embryo, it knows whether it looks more like one that resulted in a pregnancy or didn't. I would imagine that there's quite a wow factor with people involved because when you're going through IVF, your emotions are already charged. What has been the sort of reactions and experiences and uh, the reticence or the willingness to embrace this on the part of the uh, health professionals, but also the the, the couples, the parents-to-be? Yeah, I mean, the value proposition for the patients is enormous for this type of technology because what we're doing is reducing the number of IVF treatment cycles they need to go through and it's an incredibly traumatic and stressful and very financially constraining process for the patient. So we've had an amazing response from patients. But interestingly, from the clinics themselves, they've actually been quite open to adoption of this type of technology as well because what it does is it creates efficiency within their laboratories, within their IVF clinics such that they can serve a small patients and there's a huge demand for IVF. Um, but it also improves their success rates, and that's what they that's what patients shop around for. So it's really the value proposition is quite strong for both the clinic and the patient, and the feedback has been amazing. And it's just such a simple, scalable system to use. They drag and drop embryo images onto a web-based application. It takes about ten seconds to run the AI analysis. Everything's automated, and it's bringing the global intelligence from you know, the global IVF community and global data to that um, IVF clinic and helping them make the very best decision for their patients. So it's quite amazing and, and they really love it. If only we could have such great data when it comes to dating in the first place. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, for people listening in who, who might be running a GP clinic uh, or some other medical or allied health entity, um, we've already looked at the seriousness of managing data uh, and where things can go wrong. But if we just look positively at what could be embraced, what, what benefits are there awaiting them if they do uh, take some steps down the path of exploring greater use of data and data analysis in their uh, practice? 
It's a really interesting and difficult question because what you want to manage is kind of the misuse of, of data and make sure that the governance is right and that you understand where that data is going and what it's being used for. I think that's really important for everyone to understand. But one of the um, important things if you're running your own clinic is to understand that data is the future and it is going to underpin every technology that is going to have a positive impact on their industry down the track. And so if they're not in the business of collecting data, they should probably start and um, start getting some cadence around the data that they collect and how they kind of store it, even if they're not utilising it straight away because you need, you're going to need data cadence and governance and the ability to collect and utilise data with all of these new future technologies that are going to come about. So, and it's kind of like, I, I liken it to internet banking. You know, back in the day when internet banking first came out, no one wanted to put their private information on internet banking and access their accounts. I think over time, practicality and clinical outcome will outweigh the risks of the data. And so long as there's good data governance structures in place to manage those risks, I think it will be, um, you know, our future is going to be data. And just in closing, what does good data governance look like in such a practice? Are there some telltale signs that we're getting it right? That's a really difficult question to answer. In the industry that, um, that I operate in and in the healthcare sector more generally, Data governance is critically important because abuse or misuse of the private and patient information can have serious ramifications for the patient, um, but it's also heavily regulated industry with lots of data laws that govern different countries in the world. And so I think compliance with the local government um, data governance laws is important. I think ethics and consent is another layer around good data governance. So making sure that the patient is aware of data that you're collecting and the purpose for which you're collecting it for. Um, and then obviously maintaining or, or managing third-party access to that data is really important. So we as a company undertake never to move or on-sell or utilise patient data for any purpose other than for which it was collected. Um, we have really strict protocols around that. We comply with all of the global regulations around data collection and governance. So there are many guides around, but I think, it's, to be honest, it's kind of an evolving, evolving space. Um, and it's different depending on the country that you're operating. And I do promise this is the last question. Just for anyone who does want to take this further, are there any leading countries or institutions around the world to keep an eye on, to learn from, who seem to be at the forefront of developing what might be world's best, best practice uh, in this field? Really, I, I, I can't pinpoint any specific ones, but there are, I mean, if you look up kind of data privacy and data governance guidelines, you'll see things around, you know, for example, the US has their HIPAA guidance um, and the, Europe has GDPR, which is extremely stringent and protective from the patient perspective. So they're always good to keep track of what's happening with those types of guidances. Australia is probably not quite as advanced in that um, area, but we do have really good ethical guidance um, around, you know, the Australian government's putting together this ethics committee around how data is collected and 
our AI is utilised and other technologies like AI that are heavy data utilisers. So I think it's just really generally keeping on top of, of what's happening in the world and what other countries are aspiring to in terms of data protection and governance. Dr. Michelle Perugini, thank you for joining us and fueling our, our curiosity and our awareness for this particular episode and this topic. It's been a pleasure. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thank you.